0: This evening we're gonna be taking a look at the mountain of evidence that there really is for the resurrection of Jesus, and then we're going to take a look at about the seven most common cultural and scholarly objections to the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to put them through the test of logic and historicity. Throughout this message series, we've been examining the question, why should I believe anything the gospels say about Jesus? In other words, why should I believe the things the Bible says about Jesus? We started by looking at why we can trust that the biblical gospels we have today are the same as those written originally in the back half of the first century AD. We've also looked at why the gospels should be taken seriously as accurate historical accounts. And last week we looked at the top 10 reasons why we know that the gospel writers told the truth. All of this is important because the teachings of the Bible and all of Christianity hang on the belief that Jesus is God and that he proved it by rising from the dead. If the resurrection is a lie, we have no reason to take anything else the Bible says seriously. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus really is God, the single most important person in the universe and the only one who has the ability to affect your eternity and mine. If you're a person who cares about truth, you owe it to yourself to investigate the claims of Jesus. And the most logical place to start is with his resurrection. After the last four messages we've done, the only remaining option for the skeptic is the idea that the disciples were somehow deceived into thinking the resurrection had happened. And so we're gonna examine that possibility as well as several of the other most popular alternate explanations that are given for the resurrection. This whole series is designed to be gone through message by message because each message builds on the one before it. So if you have a question about the information we're sharing tonight, it's probably answered in one of the earlier messages in this series. And if you'll examine those messages and the content from tonight, it will be clear by the time you've made that investment beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the God he claimed to be and therefore he really can do for us the things which he says he can, offer forgiveness, a relationship with God, peace, joy, meaning, purpose, and more in this life and an eternity in heaven with him forevermore. This message is adapted from a chapter in the excellent book titled I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. I encourage you to check that out as well if you're into this subject. Let's jump right in. So despite all the evidence we've shared in this series, evidence that the disciples accurately documented what they saw Jesus do and say, there are many skeptics who consider the resurrection a non-starter for the same reason they consider the miracles described in the Bible a non-starter. And that is because they hold to what's called a naturalist world view. A philosophical naturalist is a person who holds to the belief that there is no such thing as the supernatural. So if you start from that position, it makes miracles immediately impossible, especially things like rising from the dead. And I wish I had time to address this issue. But in reality, it's an entire message unto itself. And so if this is a question you're wrestling with or you know someone who's wrestling with, I will simply say this, you don't need to start with the resurrection. You need to start with the evidence for a God of any type. Because before you can look into the question, is Jesus God, you have to first address the question of why should I believe that there is any God or any supernatural domain? And that's an entirely different subject, and it's actually one that we're going to get into when we start our Genesis series in the new year. We'll hit that topic in the first few weeks of 2018. But for now, all I'm going to simply share is the spoiler that God does exist. It's provable, and based on logic, because God exists, miracles are therefore possible. It's really that simple. To come to a conclusion on any subject requires an assessment of the facts, the evidence, the information that is known. So what information about Jesus Christ is known to be factual? What about Jesus do we know is true? What's accepted as true almost universally about Jesus by those who are familiar with the history? The historian and biblical scholar Gary Habermas conducted the most comprehensive investigation to date into what scholars believe about the resurrection. Habermas collected more than 1,400 of the most critical scholarly works on the resurrection written between 1975 and 2003 and reports that virtually all scholars... From across the ideological spectrum, hyper-liberals to hyper-conservative scholars agree that the following points concerning Jesus and Christianity are actual historical facts. So if you're wondering what do people actually know and believe about Jesus to be true based on history itself, it's these 12 facts. They're on your outline. Firstly, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. He was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Soon afterwards, his disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his internment. The disciples had experiences they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Number seven, the resurrection was preached and proclaimed very early from the beginning of church history. The disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before. The gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time was converted when he claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Just a few years later Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention, you would have noticed that none of those facts prove Jesus was God or make that claim. They're simply historical facts that are accepted by virtually all scholars who have studied that period of history. And so when people wanna say things like, well, you know, there's no evidence Jesus existed, we've covered in our last four messages why that's absolute nonsense, but these are actually four facts, not only saying that Jesus existed, but specific pieces of information that is known about the time from secular history. These facts are widely and almost universally accepted among scholars. Because of those 12 facts, the last possible out for the skeptic is the theory that the gospel and the New Testament writers were, were deceived. In other words, perhaps they were simply wrong about what they thought they saw. Perhaps they really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that's why they paid with their lives, but they were actually mistaken or fooled. Perhaps there are natural explanations for all the miracles that they think they saw Jesus perform during those three years. Remember that while not all scholars believe that Jesus rose from the dead, Virtually all scholars acknowledge that the disciples of Jesus believed that he rose from the dead. So for the disciples to be wrong or deceived in some way, there has to be another explanation for the resurrection, and all these are the miracles that the disciples claim to have witnessed in the New Testament. We're focusing on the greatest miracle recorded in the New Testament, the resurrection. Why? Because if you can disprove the resurrection, then you've likely disproved all the other miracles in the Gospels and probably in the Bible. But if you can prove that the resurrection is the most likely and reasonable explanation given the evidence, then you can prove by implication that all the other Gospels record miracles that are at least possible. So let's move into the the Mythbusters portion of today's study and work our way through the most common and widely spread theories that supposedly disprove the resurrection. As you probably noticed, I ran out of space on your sheet, so you'll just have to make notes on the back or the column, wherever you find it helpful. The first theory out there is hallucinations. Perhaps out of their deep desire to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, the disciples simply hallucinated him into being alive. This theory has a number of fatal flaws, but I'm just gonna point out the two biggest. It's simply that hallucinations are not experienced by groups they're only experienced by individuals much like dreams that's why if a friend says to you one morning wow that was a great dream we had last night right you don't say, you know what, you're right, that was fabulous, let's, let's continue it tonight, let's just pick up where we left off. No, you think your friend is out of his mind or not being serious at all. You don't take him seriously because we all understand that dreams are not collective experiences. Individuals have dreams, groups do not. Hallucinations work the same way. If a rare set of psychological circumstances exist, an individual may have a hallucination, but his friends will not. And even if the friends do have a hallucination, they won't have the same hallucination. This theory doesn't work because Jesus did not appear to just one person. He appeared on a dozen separate occasions in a variety of settings to different people over a 40-day period of time. He was seen by both men and women. He was seen walking, talking, and eating. He was seen inside and outside. He was seen by hundreds at one time, by groups of small amounts of people, and by individuals. A total of more than 500 people saw the risen Jesus. And they were not seeing a hallucination or a ghost because on six of those 12 appearances, Jesus was physically touched and or ate physical, real food in front of those who were witnessing his presence. Secondly, this theory doesn't explain the issue of the empty tomb. If the 500-plus eyewitnesses did have the unprecedented experience of seeing the same hallucination at 12 different times, then why didn't the Jewish or Roman authorities simply parade the body of Jesus around Jerusalem and put an end to the whole thing? It would have ended Christianity once and for all. The authorities would have loved to do that, but apparently they couldn't because the tomb really was empty. Theory doesn't make sense. Second theory, the witnesses went to the wrong tomb. Maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb and it was empty because nobody had used that tomb yet, and so they mistakenly assumed that Jesus had risen. Two big problems with this one, too. First, if the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, the Jewish or Roman authorities would have simply gone to the right one and done what? Paraded the body of Jesus around Jerusalem to prove that Jesus was dead. The tomb was known by the Jewish leaders because it was owned by a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb was known by the Romans because they sent their soldiers there to guard it. As the philosopher William Lane Craig notes, the wrong tomb theory is based on the assumption that all of the Jewish religious leaders and all of the Romans had a permanent kind of collective amnesia about what they had done with the body of Jesus. Second, even if the disciples did go to the wrong tomb, the theory doesn't explain all the appearances of Jesus In other words, you have to explain the appearances and the empty tomb, not just one or the other. And if you read the gospel accounts, you'll notice that it's not the empty tomb that convinces most of the disciples, with the possible exception of John, that Jesus has risen from the dead. It was the appearances of Jesus that convinced the disciples he was alive and turned them from scared, scattered skeptics into the greatest peaceful missionary force in history. This is especially true of the most devout enemy of Christianity of the time, Saul. He was not only unconvinced by the empty tomb, he was persecuting Christians more viciously than anyone else on the planet in the years and time following the resurrection. It took an appearance of Jesus himself to turn Paul around. It seems that James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, was also converted after an appearance of Jesus. And as we've seen, James's conversion was so dramatic that he went on to be one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church and would be martyred in that city by the high priest. The bottom line is this, even if one could explain the empty tomb naturally, this wouldn't be enough to disprove the resurrection. Any alternative theory must also explain away the appearances of Jesus, and the wrong tomb theory doesn't explain either. Third, perhaps the most famous conspiracy theory out there is known as the swoon theory. Perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Perhaps he simply swooned. He he passed out. In other words, maybe he was still alive when he was put in the tomb, but he managed to somehow escape and then convince his disciples that he had risen from the dead, but he had never actually died in the first place. I'm gonna break character here and just say outright, this theory is so spectacularly stupid It's astonishing to me that it's even a thing to this day because first of all, everyone, friends and enemies alike, believed that Jesus was dead, everyone. The Romans who were professional executioners whipped and beat Jesus to the point of his collapse. They then drove heavy wrought iron nails through his hands and feet and plunged a spear through his side up into his heart. They didn't break his legs when he was on the cross to hasten death because they knew he was already dead. Additionally, Pilate checked to make sure that Jesus was dead and the fact that Jesus was dead was the reason the disciples lost all hope. The brutal Roman crucifixion techniques have been verified through archeology span and non-Christian sources. In 1968, The remains of a first century crucifixion victim were found in a cave in Jerusalem. The heel bone of this man had a seven inch nail driven through it and his lower arms showed evidence of nails as well. The spear in the heart has also been verified as a Roman crucifixion technique by the Roman author Quintilian. No wonder the eyewitnesses thought he was dead. Not only did those in the first century believe that Jesus was dead, Modern medical doctors weighing the evidence also believe that Jesus died. Writing in the March 21, 1986 edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, three medical doctors, including a pathologist from the Mayo Clinic, concluded, quote, "...clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted." and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Additionally, the blood and water from the spear wound appears to be another genuine eyewitness detail recorded by John. That fact alone should end any debate as to whether or not Jesus was actually dead on the cross. The second major flaw in the swoon theory is the fact that Jesus was embalmed with 75 pounds of bandages and spices. It seems highly unlikely that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have mistakenly embalmed a living Jesus. Third, even if everyone was wrong about Jesus being dead when he went into the tomb, how in the world would a badly injured and bleeding man still be alive 36 hours later after Jesus had gone through things like the scourging and the cross. He would have bled to death in the cold, damp, dark tomb, receiving no medical attention of any kind. But let's play the devil's advocate. Even if he did survive the dark, cold tomb, how in the world would he have unwrapped himself moved the two-ton stone up and away from the entrance of the tomb, gotten by the elite Roman guards who would have been killed for allowing a breach of security, and then convinced the scared, scattered, skeptical cowards known as the disciples that he had triumphed over death. Even if he could do all that, he would have been a battered, bleeding pulp of a man whom the disciples would have pitied, not worshipped. They wouldn't have said, you've clearly overcome death in the grave. They would have said, you're alive, but you're definitely not risen. We need to get you to a doctor. The swoon theory also cannot explain Jesus' bright light appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus that transformed his whole life and turned him from the most avowed enemy of Christianity into its greatest evangelist. It definitely wasn't a normal human being who had gone through a beating and a crucifixion who showed up and convinced Saul to change his ways. Paul's description of his conversion is recorded twice in the book of Acts, and in chapter 22, this is how Paul describes his conversion to a hostile Jewish crowd. He says, about noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Paul was then blinded for three days and experienced a 180-degree attitude change. He went from Christianity's most eager enemy to its most ardent advocate. Paul's conversion experience cannot be explained by a swooned Jesus holding a fiery torch and using his God voice from the bushes. It doesn't work out. This was a dramatic display of divine power in broad daylight that dramatically changed a man who went on to change the world forever. Additionally, several non-Christian writers affirmed that Jesus had died by crucifixion, including Josephus, Tacitus, Thallus, and the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud, for example, says that Yeshua, Jesus, was hung on a tree, that's another name for a cross, on the eve of the Passover. The Jewish Talmud is not considered a source that's friendly to Christianity, so there's no reason to doubt its authenticity. For all of these reasons and others, very few scholars take the swoon theory seriously anymore. There's just too much evidence against it. Fourthly, yeah, but what if the disciples stole the body? As we talked about last week, this theory doesn't work because in it, the disciples are the ones doing the deceiving. They're not the ones being deceived. And we've spent the last four weeks explaining why we know they weren't being deceptive. Most notable is what we talked about last week, the complete lack of motive to perpetrate this deception and then to keep perpetrating it all the way to their deaths. This theory implies that the disciples stole the body of Jesus in order to get themselves beaten, tortured, and martyred. Simply put, nobody can explain why anyone would do this. Why would they embark on such a self-defeating conspiracy? And why did every one of them continue to say that Jesus had risen from the dead to their deaths when they could have saved themselves by recanting their testimony? In addition to probably that most severe conflict of interest that's ever existed, this theory doesn't explain other absolute absurdities like, how did the disciples get past the trained Roman guards who were trained to stop people from getting access to whatever it was that they were guarding? Or if Jesus never rose from the dead, then who appeared to Paul and to James and to all the other eyewitnesses? Or did the New Testament writers lie about their conversions too? Did Paul just make up the evidence he shares in 1 Corinthians? And what about all those non-Christian writers who recorded details about the life and death of Jesus? Did Josephus lie about James being martyred by the Sanhedrin? Did the Roman writer Phlegian lie as well when he wrote in his chronicles, Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails? It would take far more of a miracle for all of this to just happen than for Jesus to rise from the dead. If you read the gospels, you'll find that this theory, the theory that the disciples stole the body was the one offered by the Jewish religious leaders of the day to explain the empty tomb. Beyond the fact that the disciples had no motive and no ability to steal the body, this ancient Jewish explanation was incompetent for two other reasons. We've talked about this before. If the guards were asleep, when they stole the body, how would they have known it was the disciples of Jesus who took it? Secondly, no Roman guard would ever admit to the punishable by death offense of falling asleep on the job and allowing the object you were guarding to be stolen. Perhaps that's why, as Matthew records, the Jewish authorities had to bribe the guards and promise to keep them out of trouble with their governor. But the most important thing this theory proves, the theory that the disciples stole the body, is it proves that there really was an empty tomb. And even the Jewish religious leaders, by offering that explanation, prove the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found after the third day. Number five is this theory. This is another one I just find amusing. A substitute took Jesus' place on the cross. Somehow, way, there was a high-five, there was a tag-team kind of thing, and some hyper-zealous, crazed follower of Jesus took his place on the cross, and then Jesus appeared from behind the curtain alive and well. This happens to be the explanation, incredibly, that's offered by Islam today. This is the traditional Islamic account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. They teach that Jesus was not crucified, but that someone like Judas took his place on the cross. In fact, the Quran says this about Jesus in Surah 4. It says, They kill him not, nor crucify him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow, for of a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power. So according to the Quran... It only appeared that Jesus was crucified, but what really happened is that Allah took Jesus straight to heaven shortly after his alleged resurrection. The first problem with this theory is that there's absolutely no evidence to back it up. None, nothing. This assertion from the Quran was only written more than 600 years after the lifetime of Jesus. How can this be considered more reliable than the accounts of the eyewitnesses which were written only decades after the events actually happened. This theory contradicts all of the eyewitness testimony and all of the accounts of the non-Christian sources of the time. It also raises more questions than it answers. Among them, most importantly, are we supposed to believe that all the people that witnessed Jesus' death, the disciples, the Roman guards, Pilate, the Jews, Jesus' family and friends, all of them couldn't tell the difference between Jesus and Judas? That every guy who has a beard looks the same? How could so many people be wrong with a simple identification? How in the world could Mary, the mother of Jesus, have stood at the foot of the cross looking up at someone who's not her son and not know the difference between her son Jesus and Judas? That's like saying that Abraham Lincoln wasn't the one killed next to his wife that April evening in 1865 at Ford's Theater. Was Mary Lincoln mistaken? about the man who was sitting next to her? Was Lincoln's bodyguard wrong about who he was guarding? Was everyone else mistaken about the identity of that American president? This sort of theory is just not believable, period. There are many other questions raised by this theory. If Jesus wasn't killed, then why was the tomb of the man who really was killed found empty? Are we supposed to believe that the substitute rose from the dead? If so, how did he do it? Are we supposed to believe that all the non-Christian historians are wrong about the death of Jesus? And what do we do with the fact that the Jewish religious leaders admitted that Jesus was dead? Was the Talmud mistaken when it said that Jesus was hung on a tree on the eve of Passover? To summarize, are we to believe that absolutely everyone from the first century was absolutely wrong about everything? On the basis of basic logic, you have to question a theory that comes more than 600 years after the events and asks you to believe that all of the evidence from the time was wrong. In fact, this theory contradicts virtually all of the 12 facts that scholars believe about Jesus. It's built on mere speculation. There's not a shred of evidence to back it up. It can't be taken seriously. Theory number six, maybe the disciples' faith led to their belief in the resurrection, In other words, they had faith, so they just started believing in it, even though it didn't really happen. A guy named John Dominic Crossan is co-founder of the far-left, hyper-liberal group of scholars and critics who call themselves the Jesus Seminar. You might remember in one of our earlier messages, we talked about the other co-founder, Bart Ehrman. They've decided that only 18% of the sayings attributed to Jesus in the Gospels are authentic. They don't really have any real reason for this skepticism, just speculative theories about how the faith of the disciples led to their belief in the resurrection and everything else in the New Testament. This theory came up when Crossan debated William Lane Craig over the resurrection. And Crossan offered the theory that the disciples made up the resurrection because they searched the scriptures after the death of Jesus and found that persecution, if not execution, was almost like a job description for being a Christian. And the whole two-hour debate turned on the response that William Lane Craig gave. He said, right, and that came after they experienced the resurrection appearances. The faith of the disciples didn't lead to the resurrection appearances. It was the appearances of the resurrected Jesus that led to their faith. Then they searched the scriptures. If you read the Gospels, you'll discover for yourself that After Jesus was arrested and crucified, the disciples, as we've said, over and over were scattered. They were scared. They were skeptical. They're definitely not in the headspace to invent a resurrection story and then go out and die for it. Their only real concern was hiding from the Jewish religious authorities because they thought they were coming for them next. It was the resurrection appearances of Jesus that gave them the bold faith, not the other way around. Crossan has it totally backwards. In addition to the fact there's no evidence for this theory, Crossan cannot account for the resurrection appearances to more than 500 people. He also can't account for the empty tomb or why the Jewish religious leaders gave the explanation that the disciples stole the body. The Jews knew that the disciples were going around claiming that the resurrection was a real historical event, not just a product of their faith. They weren't going around saying, Jesus has risen in our hearts. They were going around saying he's really alive, physically and literally. If the resurrection didn't really occur, then why did the Jewish leaders, all the way through the second century, continue insisting that the disciples had stolen the body? Crossan and others like him have no answer because their theory is false. And now what is perhaps the internet's favorite conspiracy theory regarding the resurrection? And I would share, you know, a helpful quote from Abraham Lincoln at this point, who famously said, you can't always believe everything you read on the internet. Classic Lincoln. Um, Skeptics are quick to cite supposed resurrections of mythical characters like Marduk, Adonis, and Osiris. And they love to say that the Christian resurrection story is just a copy of pagan resurrection myths. So is the gospel account just another ancient myth based on other ancient myths? This one has a lot of traction in our world and culture today. First, as we've explained over the last four weeks, the New Testament is anything but mythological. Unlike pagan myths, the New Testament is loaded with actual eyewitness evidence, real historical figures, and it's corroborated by several outside sources. C.S. Lewis, if you don't know who he is, he's the famous author of the Books of Narnia and other fantastic series. He's a writer of myths himself, and he's commented that the New Testament stories don't show any of the literary signs of being mythological. Here's what Lewis said. He said, all I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. I'm prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the gospels are either legends or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people, and I know perfectly well the gospels are not that kind of thing. Second, the pagan myth theory doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't explain the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses or the testimony of the non-Christian writings. It also doesn't explain the evidence that leads virtually all scholars to accept all the other 12 historical facts that we mentioned at the beginning of this message. Scholars do not accept the fact that demigods once walked the earth in relation to ancient Greece. But they do accept the fact that a man named Jesus walked the earth at the time the Bible says he does, and they accept those other 12 facts about him. Third, Ancient non-Christian sources knew that the New Testament writers were not offering mythical accounts. Scholar Craig Blomberg observes, the earliest Jewish and pagan critics of the resurrection understood the gospel writers to be making historical claims, not writing myth or legend. They merely disputed the plausibility of those claims. So in other words, in those first several centuries following the time of Jesus, None of the critics of Christianity were under the impression that these were myths or legends. They understood the gospel writers and the writers of the New Testament were claiming these were actual historical events. And those who didn't believe it didn't believe it because they dismissed it as myths. They didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But they understood the issue was actual history. Fourth, no Greek or Roman myth spoke of the literal incarnation of a monotheistic God into human form by way of a literal virgin birth followed by his death and physical resurrection. The Greeks were polytheists. They believed in many gods, not monotheists who only believe in one God as New Testament Christians did. Additionally, the Greeks believed that if you were reincarnated, it was into a different physical body. New Testament Christians believed in resurrection into the same physical body that was then made immortal fifth, the first real parallel of a dying and rising God doesn't appear until AD 150, more than 100 years after the origins of Christianity. So if there was any influence on one on the other, it was the influence of the historical events of the New Testament on mythology, not the reverse. The only known account of a God surviving death that predates Christianity is the Egyptian cult god Osiris. In this myth, Osiris is cut into 14 pieces, scattered around Egypt, then reassembled and brought back to life by the goddess Isis. However, Osiris doesn't actually come back to physical life but becomes a member of the shadowy underworld in Egyptian mythology. As Habermas and another scholar, Mike Lycona, observe, this is far different than Jesus' resurrection account where he was the gloriously risen prince of life who was seen by others on earth before his ascension into heaven. Finally, even if there are myths about dying and rising gods that are found to have existed before Christianity, That doesn't mean that the New Testament writers copied from them. This will blow your mind, but Star Trek aired on TV before the US shuttle program. But that doesn't mean that the newspaper reports about the US space shuttle program were influenced by Star Trek episodes. I think we'd all understand that. I'm gonna put it this way too. There's a quote. Uh, by Ricky Gervais, who's an avowed atheist, but he's a terrible philosopher because he fails at basic logical arguments. One of his favorite things to say that as he it all over the internet by atheists is, oh, you know, there are a million religions around the world, but yours is the right one. And that's not a logical argument at all because you could take any fact in existence, like the force of gravity, and if you invented a billion alternate theories about the force of gravity that would have no impact on what the actual reality and truth is about the force of gravity. It would have no bearing at all. You would still have to evaluate each theory and test it and examine it to see which one is true. But the number of alternate explanations has no bearing on the fact that there is a truthful and right one. No bearing whatsoever. You've gotta look at the evidence of each account to see whether it's historical or mythical. There's no eyewitnesses for the resurrection of Osiris. There's no corroborating evidence for the resurrection or historicity of Osiris or any other pagan gods' adventures. No one believes they're true historical figures. But as we've seen, there's overwhelming eyewitness and corroborating evidence to support the historicity, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're comparing apples to origins. I want to deal with one bonus theory. It's not as much as a theory as much as it is a view that's fairly recent. It's the view that we can't even consider the historical reliability of the Gospels and the resurrection because history cannot be known. This is the theory. Ironically, this objection normally comes from the same people who say they know that the first life on earth generated spontaneously from non-living chemicals, and that all subsequent life evolved from that first life without intelligent intervention. They're absolutely sure about that history, despite the fact there are no eyewitnesses, virtually no corroborating data for those events. Yet they assert that the resurrection of Jesus, an event for which there are eyewitnesses and corroborating data, cannot be known, which goes against all common sense. Are we not sure who the first president of the United States was? Who the first prime minister of Canada was? Are we not sure about the date that World War II started, the date Pearl Harbor was attacked? Who won the Stanley Cup in 1975, or the World Series in 1987? Of course we are. We know all of those things for a fact. The skeptic's absolutely wrong. But the skeptic might say, well, we can't have knowledge of any past event because we don't have access to all the facts. But based on that logic, then scientists can't know anything either because they don't have access to all the facts. It's obviously absurd. While we don't have access to all the facts, we may still be able to gather enough facts to be reasonably certain about what happened. Part of the confusion involves a failure to define what it means to know something. We can't go back in a time machine and witness history again, so our understanding of history is based on probability. In other words, we have to use the same standards that a jury in a court case would use to decide if the defendant had committed a crime, and that standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard for history, that's the standard for science, that's the standard for our legal system. If history cannot be known, then no jury could ever convict anyone of anything. After all, a jury makes a judgment on the guilt or innocence of a person based on implied knowledge about some past event. Historians have to discover the truth just like police and forensic scientists do by piecing together the evidence, interviewing eyewitnesses, and coming to the most reasonable conclusion. Finally, if we can't know history, then based on that rationale, skeptics cannot claim that Christianity is untrue. Because to say that Christianity is untrue and that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the skeptic has to claim that they know history. Every negation implies an affirmation. If they're gonna say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, which is the negation, then they have to know what actually happened to him, which is the affirmation. In the end, skeptics and atheists are caught in a dilemma. If they say history cannot be known, then they lose the ability to say that evolution is true and Christianity is false. If they admit that history can be known, then they have to deal with this mountain of evidence and what is known about Jesus in the history of Christianity. And so we've just laid out the reasons why the seven most popular resurrection conspiracy theories don't pass the basic tests of logic and history. But the truth is, I don't think that's enough. I don't think we need to just play defense because skeptics of the resurrection demand that Christians provide proof for their belief. And I think we have. But I also suggest that those who hold to any other theory about the resurrection also need to offer their own first century evidence. It seems only fair given that the evidence in Christianity is based in the first century. Therefore, the skeptics should have to meet the same standard. You see it's one thing to come up with an alternate theory but it's another thing to actually provide evidence from the time for it. A theory is not evidence. Reasonable people demand evidence, not just theories because anyone can come up with a theory to explain any historical event. If someone were to claim that all of the video evidence of the Holocaust concentration camps was staged and manufactured by Jews to generate sympathy so that a Jewish state could be proposed, You wouldn't believe that theory because it flies in the face of all the known evidence. If someone who believed that wanted to be taken seriously, they would have to provide their own credible, independent eyewitness evidence from the time that meets the same quality standards as the evidence we already have. And of course, that sort of counter evidence doesn't exist when it comes to the Holocaust. And that's the reality of the resurrection too. While skeptics can come up with alternate theories... There's no evidence from the first century supporting any of them. The only alternative theory for the resurrection that's even mentioned in the first century is in the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the theory that the disciples stole the body and it's clearly identified as a lie. No one from the ancient world, even the enemies of Christianity, has offered a plausible alternative explanation for the resurrection. Many alternative theories formulated over the past 200 years from our time are rooted in that naturalist philosophical position, the belief that there's no such thing as the supernatural. Since modern philosophical scholars rule out miracles in advance, they invent explanations to explain away the resurrection. And as we've seen, their explanations don't even make sense. They're absurd and they fail basic tests of logic. If you hold to a different theory for the resurrection, you need to answer this question. What evidence do you have for your theory? Can you name three or four first century sources that support your theory? And when an honest skeptic is presented with this question, they're only gonna be able to answer with silence or some sort of bumbling answer because there is no evidence from the time for their theory. And it's not just the resurrection they have to explain. They also have to explain the other 35 miracles Jesus performed that are attributed to him by multiple eyewitnesses. Are we supposed to believe the gospel writers were deceived about all of those miracles? This sort of mass deception theory would need some sort of evidence, some sort of motivation. But we don't have any motivation, and we don't have any evidence from the time against it. The only evidence against it from the time, probably the second century, is the Jewish Talmud, which even admits that Jesus performed unusual acts, but it says that he, quote, practiced sorcery. But this explanation is just as weak as the Jewish explanation for the empty tomb. Because while sorcery or magic or sleight of hand could explain some of Jesus' miracles, it can't explain all 35. It can't explain things like rising from the dead, giving sight to somebody who's been blind their whole life, walking on water, turning water into wine, things like that. So if there's no ancient evidence for deception, are we supposed to just believe what the New Testament says? Well, why not? Why not? We live in a universe clearly created by God. Therefore, miracles are possible. And while it's true that we don't have independent verification for all of the miracles in the New Testament, because some are only mentioned by one gospel writer... We do have multiple verifications of many of them, including the resurrection. And the sheer number of independent sources outside the Bible who aren't even friendly to Christianity, who talk about Jesus performing miracles, is just too great to be explained away by saying it was some deception. One person might be deceived once, but not multiple people numerous times over and over and over again. The German scholar Wolfgang Trilling wrote this. He said, we are convinced and hold it for historically certain that Jesus did in fact perform miracles. The miracle reports occupy so much space in the Gospels that it is impossible that all could have subsequently been invented or transferred to Jesus. And William Lane Craig said, the fact that miracle workings belong to the historical Jesus is no longer disputed. In other words, those people who say Jesus didn't perform miracles don't make that claim based on the historical evidence. They make that claim based on the philosophical belief they hold to. So people who say Jesus didn't perform miracles are naturalists and they're saying, well, because I believe miracles are impossible, Jesus therefore could not have performed miracles. But there's nobody who's saying based on the historical evidence Jesus didn't perform miracles because you can't make that claim based on the historical evidence. There's simply too much evidence to ignore. And with regard to the resurrection, all the other theories have fatal flaws. And we have overwhelming eyewitness and circumstantial evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead. In other words, not only do we lack a natural explanation for the empty tomb, but we have positive evidence for the resurrection. The explanation for the empty tomb that requires the least amount of faith is the explanation that Jesus really did perform miracles and really did rise from the dead, as he predicted. To refresh our memories, here's the context that we've got to remember we're evaluating the evidence in for the resurrection. I'm gonna have you write some things down here. Here's the context. Firstly, our universe proves the existence of God. Therefore, miracles are possible. Our universe proves the existence of God. Therefore, miracles are possible. We're gonna get into this in January. It's very simple, the universe exists against all odds and statistical probabilities and there's overwhelming evidence in the universe of a designer. You can just go research DNA if you need evidence on that. And therefore, because the universe has signs of intelligent design, it proves that there is a God who willingly created the universe. The greatest miracle of all, the creation of all of this, out of nothing has already occurred. Therefore, it's completely plausible that God can use prophets to announce his messages and miracles to confirm them. Second bit of context to remember ancient documents prophesied miracles. Prophesied miracles. We know, based on archaeology and history, that we have Old Testament documents written hundreds of years in advance that predict the Messiah. A man who would actually be God in the flesh would come, be killed at a specific time as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind and rise from the dead. No other religion has that. Third bit of context. Historically confirmed eyewitness documents claim that miracles are real. The eyewitness documents claim miracles are real. There are 27 documents written by nine eyewitnesses or their contemporaries that describe numerous miraculous events. Many of these documents contain historically confirmed eyewitness testimony from the time of the events and the evidence as we've seen over the past four weeks shows that the narrative is not invented, it's not exaggerated and it's not designed to deceive We know this because the New Testament documents pass all seven tests of historicity. These are on your outline. I know we're just drinking from the fire hose right now, but I just want you to be overwhelmed by this mountain of evidence for the resurrection. These are the seven tests of historicity that the New Testament documents pass. They are firstly early. They're written only 15 to 40 years after the events, well within two generations of the events. They contain eyewitness testimony. They contain independent eyewitness testimony from multiple sources. They're written by trustworthy people who taught and lived by the highest standard of ethics and who died for their testimony. They describe events, locations, and individuals that are corroborated by archeology span and other ancient writers. They describe some events that enemies tacitly admit are true, even the enemies attest to the truthfulness of the narrative. And lastly, they describe events and details that are embarrassing to the authors and even to Jesus himself. And when you put all of these historically confirmed eyewitness documents together, this is the story they tell. Also on your outline here, at the time and place and in the manner predicted by the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and claims to be the Messiah. This is known history. He teaches profound truths, and according to numerous independent eyewitnesses, performs at least 35 miracles, summon groups of people, and rises from the dead. Again, these are just facts we're sharing right now. Secondly, once cowardly and unbelieving eyewitnesses, the disciples, suddenly begin to boldly proclaim Jesus' resurrection in the face of persecution and death. As we said last week, misguided people might die for a lie they think is true, But they won't die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether or not the resurrection was real. Thirdly, in the very city of Jesus' death and tomb, a new movement, the church, is born and quickly spreads by peaceful means on the belief that Jesus has risen from the dead. This is really hard to explain if there is no resurrection. How could Christianity begin in a city like Jerusalem that was hostile to its existence if Jesus' body was still in the tomb? The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities would have simply produced the body and exposed Christianity as a lie. Fourthly, then thousands of Jerusalem Jews, including Pharisee priests, abandon five of their most treasured Jewish beliefs and practices and adopt strange new ones like communion and baptism after converting to Christianity. Number five, Saul, the most ardent enemy of the new church, is suddenly converted and becomes its most prolific proponent. He travels the ancient world to proclaim the resurrection, suffering persecution and martyrdom. If there was no resurrection, then why did the greatest enemy of Christianity suddenly become its greatest leader? Why did he willingly suffer persecution and death? Number six, James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, suddenly becomes convinced that his brother is the son of God and then becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He later suffers martyrdom at the hands of the high priest. Is there anybody more difficult to convince of your religious viewpoint than family members? James began as the unconvinced brother of Jesus. If there's no resurrection, then why did James suddenly go from thinking his brother was delusional to believing he was the son of God? Unless he saw the resurrected Jesus, why would he believe that all the way to a martyr's death? Why would he take over leadership of the Jerusalem church? And then seventh, the Jewish enemies of Christianity don't deny the evidence of the empty tomb, but offer a faulty, easily exposed explanation that's naturalistic to account for it. Again, those are all things that are known to have happened in history. Fourth bit of context, the eyewitness documents are confirmed by non-Christian and even anti-Christian ancient sources, as well as archeology. span So the narrative I've just shared, those seven points, the 12 points we shared at the beginning, those are historical facts confirmed by historical documents that are even against Christianity. The collective references of ancient historians and writers confirm the basic storyline of the New Testament, and several archaeological discoveries affirm the details that are found in the Gospels. When you put the evidence in the proper context... I hope that you can see it takes far more faith to believe that the resurrection never happened than it does to conclude that it's the most logical explanation for all of the evidence. It's a lot more reasonable to be skeptical of the skeptics than skeptical of the resurrection. Now those skeptics may still look at the context and the points we've raised and they might still decide, no I don't believe it, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if they do, They can't just provide an alternate theory. They have to provide evidence as good or better than the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And no one can. They've had 2,000 years to do it, and no one's been able to do it. Write this down. The resurrection is the best, most reasonable, and most logical explanation that accounts for all of the evidence. The resurrection is the best, most reasonable, and most logical explanation that accounts for all of the evidence. If we recognize that there's a God who can act, and we do, then we have to recognize that there can be acts of God. When God announces his plans in advance, as he did through the Old Testament prophecies, and you then have good eyewitness testimony and corroborating evidence from the time that those prophesied events actually occurred, it takes a lot more faith to deny those events than to believe them. There's two more objections that skeptics often bring up against the resurrection and miracles. The first one is the demand for extraordinary evidence. Have you ever heard this rhetorically powerful statement before? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Skeptics love to say this about the resurrection. And what they mean by that is that since what we're claiming as Christians is so extraordinary, we better have extraordinary evidence to back it up. And that sounds reasonable. It sounds powerful as a spoken phrase until you ask the very reasonable question, well, what do you mean by the word extraordinary? Some skeptics mean, well, I need to see a miracle myself in order to believe in miracles, or it has to pass the test of science. It has to be repeatable in a laboratory. Is that how you say it? I kept, it's the British way. I grew up saying it the British way. In a lab, if we implement this logic, (laughs) then no event from history Think about this, if we implement this logic, then no event from history can be believed because historical events cannot be repeated. I won't believe in a World War II unless I can see a World War II with my own eyes. Unless you can produce a World War II in a lab, I'm not gonna believe it. The believability of historical events can only be confirmed by looking at the quality of the eyewitness evidence and analyzing the forensic evidence. Atheists who demand repeatability for biblical miracles are being inconsistent and hypocritical because they don't demand repeatability for the historical miracles that they believe in, the Big Bang, the spontaneous generation of life, and macroevolution of subsequent life forms. They didn't see any of those things happen. They can't repeat any of them, and yet they believe even though those things allegedly happened millions of years ago. So make a note of this. As science and the legal system affirm, we don't need extraordinary evidence to believe something is true, only good evidence that points to a most reasonable explanation. You don't need extraordinary evidence to believe something is true. You just need good evidence that points to a reasonable explanation. If by extraordinary evidence someone means much more than usual, then that's exactly what we have to support the resurrection. We have more eyewitness documents and earlier eyewitness documents for the resurrection than for any other event or person in the ancient world. These documents include more historical details and figures that have been corroborated by more independent and external sources than anything else from the ancient world. And as we've just reviewed, We also have more than usual circumstantial evidence supporting the resurrection. But finally, the skeptics' entire presupposition there should be challenged. We don't need extraordinary evidence to believe something. Atheists affirm this from their own worldview. They don't believe in the Big Bang because they have extraordinary evidence for it, but because there's good evidence that the universe came into being out of nothing. Good evidence is all you need to believe in something. But atheists don't even have good evidence for their most treasured beliefs. They believe in spontaneous generation and macroevolution on the basis of faith alone. And I say faith alone because there's not only little to no evidence for spontaneous generation and macroevolution, but there's stronger evidence against those possibilities. Additionally, skeptics don't demand extraordinary evidence for other extraordinary events or people from history. For example, few events from ancient history are considered more extraordinary than the life of Alexander the Great. We studied him a lot when we went through the book of Daniel. Even though we only lived 33 years, Alexander achieved unparalleled success and conquered most of the civilized world of that time from Greece, east to India, and south to Egypt. And yet how do we know all this about Alexander? We have no sources from his lifetime or soon after his death, none. We only have fragments from two works about 100 years after his death. The truth is we base virtually everything we know about the extraordinary life of Alexander the Great from historians who wrote three to 500 years after his death. In light of the robust evidence for the life of Jesus, anyone who doubts the historicity of Jesus should at a minimum doubt the history of Alexander the Great. In fact, to be consistent, a skeptic would have to then doubt all of ancient history. So why do skeptics demand extraordinary evidence for the life of Jesus, but not the life of Alexander the Great? Because once again, they presuppose a naturalistic universe in which the supernatural does not exist. And this presupposition makes it impossible for them to objectively evaluate the evidence. So they end up setting the bar for believability unreasonably high. It's as if some skeptics are saying, and you might know people like this, I won't believe in miracles because I haven't seen one. If the resurrected Jesus were to appear to me, then I would believe in him. Uh, That would be extraordinary. But, But is it actually necessary? Does Jesus have to appear to every person in the world in order to make his claims credible? Why would he? It doesn't make any sense. We don't have to witness an event firsthand to conclude that an event actually happened. In fact, it would be physically impossible to do so. We believe the testimony of others if they're trustworthy individuals, and especially if their testimony is corroborated, backed up by other data. This is exactly the case with the New Testament writers. But philosophically, Theologically, if God were completely obvious, in your face, and always putting on miraculous displays for us to prove himself, then he very may well infringe on our free will. Because if the purpose of this life is to allow us to freely make choices that will affect our eternity, then God will give us convincing evidence but not compelling evidence of his existence and purposes. And he would do this so that those who desire to know the truth would be able to find him, find evidence that he exists, and be able to follow him with confidence, but at the same time to preserve free will so that those who do not desire to be informed of the truth would have the option to suppress or ignore the evidence and go on living as though he didn't exist. We're almost done. Hang with me. There were two questions that we needed to answer to see if the New Testament of the Bible is truly historical. Firstly, do we have accurate copies today of the original documents that were written in the first century? And secondly, do those documents speak the truth? Over the past five weeks, we've seen that the evidence is strong that the answer to both of those questions is yes. In other words, we can be sure beyond a reasonable doubt that the gospels in the New Testament are historically reliable. We can only conclude that the major events in the New Testament really happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Jesus really lived, he really taught, performed miracles, died by crucifixion, and then rose from the dead. And if you're still not convinced, let me share one more thing with you. The incredible impact of the life of Jesus on history, as expressed in a short excerpt from a sermon that's often titled, One Solitary Life. It says this, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 20 centuries have come and gone, and today, He is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. I'm gonna have you write this down. If there was no resurrection How do you explain the most influential life of all time? Whether you're a Christian or not, there is no argument that no man has affected the world the way Jesus has. And they only preached for three years. When you weigh the evidence, you'll realize that unless you saw the event yourself, you couldn't be any more sure that these events actually occurred. We don't have enough faith to believe that this one solitary life from a remote ancient village could be the most influential life of all time unless the resurrection's really true. I'm gonna close with this. I was uh, listening to a podcast the other day and it hit on a subject that I'd actually seen. If you don't know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, he is a person who seems to be extremely fond of himself. That's the kindest way I can put it. He's also the foremost public face of the scientific community. In other words, when somebody wants to talk about science or understanding science, he's the guy they call, and he's the guy who loves to be on TV. He's like Bill Nye the science guy, except he actually is a scientist. He does actually have that going for him. And Neil deGrasse Tyson will now be asked by people, what do you think about God? which is a fascinating commentary because that's a philosophical question, not a scientific question. But in our society today, scientists are considered to be the philosophers of the age, not philosophers. And I was stunned because I've seen him do this multiple times. Neil deGrasse Tyson will share, well, you know, I looked into this and philosophers looked into the subject of God and concluded, based on all the suffering in the world, that if there is a God, He's either not all good because they're suffering or he's not all powerful because he can't stop the suffering and the people who are interviewing him will go oh wow that's so profound and I'm stunned when I hear them say this and the reason is because among the objections to God among the reasons to not believe in God that is considered philosophically one of the most juvenile and basic and childish and easily disproved and debunked reasons to not believe in God. It's, it's one of the easiest ones to answer. And if you're asking what the answer is, we talk about it in our message series, In the Valley, which you can get in the lobby. I answer that question. It's not a hard question to answer. And this stunned me because... This means that the man who is the foremost face of science in our world today publicly has not even taken the two minutes it would take to Google that position because on the very first page of results would be answers from Christians explaining why that position doesn't make sense. He hasn't even Googled it, and yet even in the realm of science, The very first and most important question in all of science across every field is why is there anything? That's the very first question of all science. It all comes down to that. Why is there matter at all? Why is there a universe? Why is there anything for us to study? And on this question, Neil deGrasse Tyson has not invested more than five minutes of his life it's astonishing to me astonishing and yet he will present himself as a reasonable logic-based empirically minded scientist but his philosophical position on god proves the exact opposite and i share that to say that what we talked about is really true there is a mountain of evidence for the resurrection It's the only reasonable explanation for everything that even non-believers acknowledge is true about history. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to explain all of these facts, what the flip was going on then in the first century. You've got to actually explain what the heck happened because something happened, and you have got to explain what it is. I wonder if I have to bleep the word flip when I put this up on the internet, so... Um, I might have to, no, it'll look worse if I bleep it. This is a real dilemma. I'm gonna have to think this through later. I said, Pastor Jeff said flip in this moment, so. Um, But something happened. All the evidence is there, but yet, if you don't wanna believe, you still can choose to ignore and suppress the truth and it will make sense to you. That is a terrifying thing. If you wanna know how terrifying, read Romans 1 and 2 that you can choose to be in darkness. You can choose to deceive yourself and stay there. And the longer you dwell there, the more you can convince yourself that what you believe actually makes sense. That's a terrifying thing to me, terrifying thing. That the Gospel of John says, lights come into the world, but the reason men did not receive it is because they prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness. The issue is not a lack of evidence. There's never been a lack of evidence. Romans 1 says even if there wasn't the resurrection, there's still creation all around us. There's still the conscience in every human being telling them what's right and what is wrong. And so if you care about truth, if you care about truth, examine the evidence. And if you already believe the truth about Jesus, I want to encourage you The evidence for what we believe is overwhelming, overwhelming. There's no comparison between Christianity and everything else. You know why all these facts are historically accepted? Because they happened in public. There was nobody with Muhammad when he allegedly went into this cave and got this magic revelation. There was nobody with the founders of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism when they got these supposed revelations. There was nobody with the Buddha who saw these apparent insights he got. Everything about Jesus happened in view of witnesses and is historically corroborated. It's incredible. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus, and thank you that it's true, and the evidence proves it, and that you have given us as much evidence as you could without infringing on our free will. And so we thank you for it. And Lord, we thank you so much for the grace of your Holy Spirit in leading us to the truth. We are not in the light of the truth because we are smarter than other people or more deserving than other people. You've just been incredibly kind to us. And somehow, some way, you enabled us to look at you and recognize your unbelievable kindness to us. And that's all we are, Lord. We are beneficiaries of your kindness and your grace and your goodness. And thank you so much for revealing the truth for us. We're forever grateful. Thank you for the future that you've prepared for us. We love you for it. And we can't wait to spend eternity with you. We can't wait for the day that you rule and reign here on the earth as king and and we reign with you. And that you no longer have to be proven by investigations, but you'll be proven by your very real physical presence here. We can't wait for that, Jesus. May all glory go to you where it belongs. May you be honored in everything that we do. May your name be lifted up on the earth, Jesus. We love you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now, so stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it.